Section 21 of The Art of Public Speaking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avayi in December 2010. The Art of Public Speaking by Dale Carnegie and Joseph Burke Eisenwein. Chapter 21 influencing by narration the art of narration is the art of writing in hooks and eyes the principle consists in making the appropriate thought follow the appropriate thought the proper fact the proper fact in first preparing the mind for what is to come and then letting it come walter bacot literary studies our very speech is curiously historical most men you may observe speak only to narrate not in imparting what they have thought which indeed were often a very small matter but in exhibiting what they have undergone or seen which is a quite unlimited one do talkers dilate cut us off from narrative how would the stream of conversation even among the wisest languish into detached handfuls and among the foolish utterly evaporate thus as we do nothing but enact history we say little but recite it thomas carlyle on history only a small segment of the great field of narration offers its resources to the public speaker and that includes the anecdote biographical facts and the narration of events in general narration more easily defined than mastered is the recital of an incident or a group of facts and occurrences in such a manner as to produce a desired effect the laws of narration are few but its successful practice involves more of art than would at first appear so much indeed that we cannot even touch upon its technique here but must content ourselves with an examination of a few examples of narration as used in public speech in a preliminary way notice how radically the public speaker's use of narrative differs from that of the story writer in the more limited scope absence of extended dialogue and character drawing and freedom from elaboration of detail which characterize platform narrative on the other hand there are several similarities of method the frequent combination of narration with exposition description argumentation and pleading the care exercised in the arrangement of material so as to produce a strong effect at the close climax the very general practice of concealing the point the newment of a story until the effective moment and the careful suppression of needless and therefore hurtful details so we see that whether for magazine or platform the art of narration involves far more than the recital of annals the succession of events recorded requires a plan in order to bring them out with real effect it will be noticed too that the literary style in platform narration is likely to be either less polished and more vigorously dramatic than in that intended for publication or else more fervid and elevated in tone 
in this latter respect however the best platform speaking of today differs from the models of the preceding generation wherein a highly dignified and sometimes pompous style was thought the only fitting dress for a public deliverance great noble and stirring as these older masters were in their lofty and impassioned eloquence we are sometimes oppressed when we read their sounding periods for any great length of time even allowing for all that we lose by missing the speaker's presence voice and fire so let us model our platform narration as our other forms of speech upon the effective addresses of the moderns without lessening our admiration for the older school the anecdote an anecdote is a short narrative of a single event told as being striking enough to bring out a point the keener the point the more condensed the form and the more suddenly the application strikes the hearer the better the story to regard an anecdote as an illustration an interpretive picture will help to hold us to its true purpose for a purposeless story is of all offences on the platform the most asinine a perfectly capital joke will fall flat when it is dragged in by the nape without evident bearing on the subject under discussion on the other hand an apposite anecdote has saved many a speech from failure Quote, there is no finer opportunity for the display of tact than in the introduction of witty or humorous stories into a discourse wit is keen and like a rapier piercing deeply sometimes even to the heart humor is good-natured and does not wound wit is founded upon the sudden discovery of an unsuspected relation existing between two ideas humor deals with things out of relation with the incongruous it was wit in douglas gerald to retort upon the scowl of a stranger whose shoulder he had familiarly slapped mistaking him for a friend quote, i beg your pardon i thought i knew you but i'm glad i don't End quote. it was humor in the southern orator john wise to liken the pleasure of spending an evening with a puritan girl to that of sitting on a block of ice in winter cracking hailstones between his teeth End quote. the foregoing quotation has been introduced chiefly to illustrate the first and simplest form of anecdote the single sentence embodying a pungent saying another simple form is that which conveys its meaning without need of application as the old preachers used to say george ade has quoted this one as the best joke he ever heard two solemn-looking gentlemen were riding together in a railway carriage one gentleman said to the other is your wife entertaining this summer whereupon the other gentleman replied not very other anecdotes need harnessing to the particular truth the speaker wishes to carry along in his talk sometimes the application is made before the story is told and the audience is prepared to make the comparison point by point as the illustration is told henry w grady used this method in one of the anecdotes he told while delivering his great extemporaneous address the new south 
Age does not endow all things with strength and virtue, nor are all new things to be despised. The shoemaker who put over his door, John Smith's shop, founded 1760, was more than matched by his young rival across the street, who hung out this sign, Bill Jones, established 1886, no old stock kept in this shop. In two anecdotes told also in The New South, Mr. Grady illustrated another way of enforcing the application. In both instances, he split the idea he wished to drive home, bringing in part before and part after the recital of the story. The fact that the speaker misquoted the words of Genesis in which the Ark is described did not seem to detract from the burlesque humor of the story. I bespake the utmost stretch of your courtesy tonight. I am not troubled about those from whom I come. You remember the man whose wife sent him to a neighbor with a pitcher of milk, who, tripping on the top step, fell, with such casual interruptions as the landings afforded, into the basement, and, while picking himself up, had the pleasure of hearing his wife call out, John, did you break the pitcher? No, I didn't, said John, but I be dinged if I don't. So, while those who call to me from behind may inspire me with energy, if not with courage, I ask an indulgent hearing from you. I beg that you will bring your full faith in American fairness and frankness to judgment upon what I shall say. There was an old preacher once who told some boys of the Bible lesson he was going to read in the morning. The boys, finding the place, glued together the connecting pages. The next morning he read on the bottom of one page, When Noah was one hundred and twenty years old, he took unto himself a wife who was, then turning the page, one hundred and forty cubits long, forty cubits wide, built of gopher wood, and covered with pitch inside and out. He was naturally puzzled at this. He read it again, verified it, and then said, My friends, this is the first time I ever met this in the Bible, but I accept it as an evidence of the assertion that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If I could get you to hold such faith tonight, I could proceed cheerfully to the task I otherwise approach with a sense of consecration. Now and then a speaker will plunge without introduction into an anecdote, leaving the application to follow. The following illustrates this method. A large, slew-footed darkey was leaning against the corner of the railroad station in a Texas town, when the noon whistle in the canning factory blew, and the hands hurried out, bearing their grub buckets. The darkey listened, with his head on one side, until the rocketing echo had quite died away. Then he heaved a deep sigh and remarked to himself, "'There she go. Dinner time for some folks, but just twelve o'clock for me.' That is the situation in thousands of American factories, large and small, today. And why? Etc., etc. Doubtless, the most frequent platform use of the anecdote is in the pulpit. 
the sermon illustration however is not always strictly narrative in form but tends to extended comparison as the following from dr alexander mclaren men will stand as indian fakirs do with their arms above their heads until they stiffen there they will perch themselves upon pillars like simian stylites for years till the birds build their nests in their hair they will measure all the distance from cape comoran to juggernaut's temple with their bodies along the dusty road they will wear hair shirts and scourge themselves they will fast and deny themselves they will build cathedrals and endow churches they will do as many of you do labor by fits and starts all through your lives at the endless task of making yourselves ready for heaven and winning it by obedience and by righteousness they will do all these things and do them gladly rather than listen to the humbling message that says you do not need to do anything wash is it your washing or the water that will clean you wash and be clean naaman's cleaning was only a test of his obedience and a token that it was god who cleansed him there was no power in jordan's waters to take away the taint of leprosy our cleansing is in that blood of jesus christ that has the power to take away all sin and to make the foulest among us pure and clean one final word must be said about the introduction to the anecdote a clumsy inappropriate introduction is fatal whereas a single apt or witty sentence will kindle interest and prepare a favorable hearing the following extreme illustration by the english humorist captain harry graham well satirizes the stumbling manner the best story that i ever heard was one that i was told once in the fall of 1905 or it may have been 1906 when i was visiting boston at least i think it was boston it may have been washington my memory is so bad i happened to run across a most amusing man whose name i forget williams or wilson or wilkins some name like that and he told me this story while we were waiting for a trolley car i can still remember how heartily i laughed at the time and again that evening after i had gone to bed how i laughed myself to sleep recalling the humor of this incredibly humorous story it was really quite extraordinarily funny in fact i can truthfully affirm that it is quite the most amusing story that i have ever had the privilege of hearing unfortunately i have forgotten it biographical facts public speaking has much to do with personalities naturally therefore the narration of a series of biographical details including anecdotes among the recital of interesting facts plays a large part in the eulogy the memorial address the political speech the sermon the lecture and other platform deliverances whole addresses may be made up of such biographical details such as a sermon on moses or a lecture on lee the following example is in itself an expanded anecdote forming a link in a chain marius in prison 
the peculiar sublimity of the roman mind does not express itself nor is it at all to be sought in their poetry poetry according to the roman ideal of it was not an adequate organ for the grander movements of the national mind roman sublimity must be looked for in roman acts and in roman sayings where again will you find a more adequate expression of the roman majesty than in the saying of trajan imperatorem opportere stantem mori that caesar ought to die standing a speech of imperatorial grandeur implying that he who was the foremost man of all this world and in regard to all other nations the representative of his own should express its characteristic virtue in his farewell act should die in procinctu and should meet the last enemy as the first with a roman countenance and in a soldier's attitude if this had an imperatorial what follows had a consular majesty and is almost the grandest story upon record marius the man who rose to be seven times consul was in a dungeon and a slave was sent in with commission to put him to death these were the persons the two extremities of exalted and forlorn humanity its vanward and its rearward man a roman consul and an abject slave but their natural relations to each other were by the caprice of fortune monstrously inverted the consul was in chains the slave was for a moment the arbiter of his fate by what spells what magic did marius reinstate himself in his natural prerogatives by what marvels drawn from heaven or from earth did he in the twinkling of an eye again invest himself with the purple and place between himself and his assassin a host of shadowy lictors by the mere blank supremacy of great minds over weak ones he fascinated the slave as a rattlesnake does a bird standing like tenerife he smote him with his eye and said tune homo aures occidere gaius marium dost thou fellow presume to kill gaius marius whereat the reptile quaking under the voice nor daring to affront the consular eye sank gently to the ground turned round upon his hands and feet and crawling out of the prison like any other vermin left marius standing in solitude as steadfast and immovable as the capital thomas de quincey here is a similar example prefaced by a general historical statement and concluding with autobiographical details a reminiscence of lexington one raw morning in spring it will be eighty years the nineteenth day of this month hancock and adams the moses and aaron of that great deliverance were both at lexington they also had obstructed an officer with brave words british soldiers a thousand strong came to seize them and carry them over sea for trial and so nipped the bud of freedom auspiciously opening in that early spring the town militia came together before daylight for training a great tall man with a large head and a high wide brow their captain one who had seen service 
marshalled them into line, numbering but seventy, and bade every man load his piece with powder and ball. I will order the first man shot that runs away, said he, when some faltered. Don't fire unless fired upon, but if they want to have a war, let it begin here. Gentlemen, you know what followed. Those farmers and mechanics fired the shot heard round the world. A little monument covers the bones of such as before had pledged their fortune and their sacred honor to the freedom of America, and that day gave it also their lives. I was born in that little town and bred up amid the memories of that day. When a boy, my mother lifted me up one Sunday in her religious, patriotic arms and held me while I read the first monumental line I ever saw, Sacred to Liberty and the Rights of Mankind. Since then I have studied the memorial marbles of Greece and Rome in many an ancient town. Nay, on Egyptian obelisks have read what was written before the Eternal raised up Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, but no chiseled stone has ever stirred me to such emotion as these rustic names of men who fell in the sacred cause of God and their country. Gentlemen, the spirit of liberty, the love of justice, were early fanned into a flame in my boyish heart. That monument covers the bones of my own kinsfolk. It was their blood which reddened the long green grass at Lexington. It was my own name which stands chiseled on that stone, the tall captain who marshalled his fellow farmers and mechanics into stern array and spoke such brave and dangerous words as opened the war of American independence, the last to leave the field, was my father's father. I learned to read out of his Bible, and with a musket he that day captured from the foe, I learned another religious lesson, that rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. I kept them both, sacred to liberty and the rights of mankind, to use them both in the sacred cause of God and my country. Theodore Parker Narration of Events in General In this wider, emancipated narration, we find much mingling of other forms of discourse, greatly to the advantage of the speech, for this truth cannot be too strongly emphasized. The efficient speaker cuts loose from form for the sake of a big, free effect. The present analyses are for no other purpose than to acquaint you with form, do not allow any such models to hang as a weight about your neck. The following pure narration of events from George William Curtis's Paul Revere's Ride varies the biographical recital in other parts of his famous oration. That evening, at ten o'clock, 800 British troops under Lieutenant Colonel Smith took boat at the foot of the common and crossed to the Cambridge shore. Gage thought his secret had been kept, but Lord Percy, who had heard the people say on the common that the troops would miss their aim, undeceived him. Gage instantly ordered that no one should leave the town. But as the troops crossed the river, Ebenezer Dorr, with a message to Hancock and Adams, 
was riding over the neck to roxbury and paul revere was rowing over the river to charlestown having agreed with his friend robert newman to show lanterns from the belfry of the old north church one if by land and two if by sea as a signal of the march of the british the following from the same oration beautifully mingles description with narration it was a brilliant night the winter had been unusually mild and the spring very forward the hills were already green the early grain waved in the fields and the air was sweet with the blossoming orchards already the robins whistled the bluebirds sang and the benediction of peace rested upon the landscape under the cloudless moon the soldiers silently marched and paul revere swiftly rode galloping through medford and west cambridge rousing every house as he went spurring for lexington and hancock and adams and evading the british patrols who had been sent out to stop the news in the succeeding extract from another of mr curtis's addresses we have a free use of allegory as illustration the leadership of educated men there is a modern english picture which the genius of hawthorne might have inspired the painter calls it how they met themselves a man and a woman haggard and weary wandering lost in a sombre wood suddenly meet the shadowy figures of a youth and a maid some mysterious fascination fixes the gaze and stills the hearts of the wanderers and their amazement deepens into awe as they gradually recognize themselves as once they were the soft bloom of youth upon their rounded cheeks the dewy light of hope in their trusting eyes exulting confidence in their springing step themselves blithe and radiant with the glory of the dawn to-day and here we meet ourselves not to these familiar scenes alone yonder college green with its reverent traditions the halcyon cove of the seekonk upon which the memory of roger williams broods like a bird of calm the historic bay beating forever with the muffled oars of barton and of abraham whipple here the humming city of the living there the peaceful city of the dead not to these only or chiefly do we return but to ourselves as we once were it is not the smiling freshman of the year it is your own beardless and unwrinkled faces that are looking from the windows of university hall and of hope college under the trees upon the hill it is yourselves whom you see walking full of hopes and dreams glowing with conscious power and nourishing a youth sublime and in this familiar temple which surely has never echoed with eloquence so fervid and inspiring as that of your commencement orations it is not yonder youths in the galleries who as they fondly believe are whispering to yonder maids it is your younger selves who in the days that are no more are murmuring to the fairest mothers and grandmothers of those maids happy the worn and weary man and woman in the picture could they have felt their older eyes still glistening with that earlier light and their hearts yet beating with undiminished sympathy and aspiration 
happy we brethren whatever may have been achieved whatever left undone if returning to the home of our earlier years we bring with us the illimitable hope the unchilled resolution the inextinguishable faith of youth george william curtis questions and exercises one clip from any source ten anecdotes and state what truths they may be used to illustrate two deliver five of these in your own language without making any application three from the ten deliver one so as to make the application before telling the anecdote four Deliver another so as to split the application. 5. Deliver another so as to make the application after the narration. 6. Deliver another in such a way as to make a specific application needless. 7. Give three ways of introducing an anecdote by saying where you heard it, etc. 8. Deliver an illustration that is not strictly an anecdote in the style of Curtis's speech on page 259. 9. Deliver an address on any public character using the forms illustrated in this chapter. 10. Deliver an address on some historical event in the same manner. 11. Explain how the sympathies and viewpoint of the speaker will color an anecdote, a biography, or a historical account. 12. Illustrate how the same anecdote or a section of a historical address may be given two different effects by personal prejudice. 13. What would be the effect of shifting the viewpoint in the midst of a narration? 14. What is the danger of using too much humor in an address? Too much pathos. End of section 21.